1: back to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic, presented by BetMGM. I'm Max Boltman. With me, as always, is Prashant Ayer. The Red Wings coming off the, uh, well, I guess the the back half of their four-game series with the Dallas Stars. Uh, They win the first game on the back of a Jacob Vrana four-goal game. We'll get to that in a minute. And then the second one, uh one of the stranger hockey games I have ever watched in my life. The Red Wings get outshot. Is it 51-17? Is that the final total? I
2: think it was 52-17 was 52-17. the
1: 52-17. At one point it was as extreme as like 36 to 3, I think.
2: It was 36 to 3 and then 41 to 6 at the end of the second period.
1: Unbelievable. Um the Red Wings were leading I think on both of those <laughs> at both of those points in the game. <laughs> They do end up giving up a tying goal and then losing in overtime, but they do get the uh the loser point out of it. Um we'll get to the implications of that in a minute, but uh what was going through your mind watching that game?
2: I mean, that was single-handedly just I mean it was just brings back flashbacks of just watching a goaltender take over a hockey game like Jonathan Bernier was sensational. Um you know, going through in uh, kind of just watching him make save after save after save. I mean, he was just peppered nonstop. To give up 41 shots through two periods is absolutely insanity. And not only was it just a high volume of shots, it ended up being you know a lot of high-quality chances. I mean, in the Jeff Blaschel era, I think the Red Wings finished by evolving hockey's count with a grand total of 5.34 expected goals against. That's the sixth highest amount since Jeff blashell has been coach. And so to to watch Jonathan Bernier for two periods, uh, basically stonewall the stars, and then really get them all the way through uh, in, into overtime before he's beaten on that crazy Jamie Ben shot. It's just nothing short of miraculous.
1: Yeah, it was wild. I mean, I I don't know. Different models are different. I think I saw the was it Hockey Viz had it at like five point one to one as like the projected final.
2: Yeah, and then it was pretty close with Evolving Hockey. I think they had it as five point four to uh, like one point one. So
1: absolutely nuts. Jonathan Bernier probably if he didn't get an IV, he deserved an IV at the very least for the for the effort that he put in in that one. Um, but the Red Wings come out of it with a loser point, which is a nice little segue into our main topic today, because running through my head as that happened was, this is the worst way for a rebuilding team to accidentally pick up a point with seven games left in the season where there is very much still a, a, a uh, jockeying for lottery position to be happening. Now, I often will try to fight that impulse to even think about that while covering a game because... It, will, it is never going to be the case. that The players are going to think about it. And frankly, I've learned in three years on this beat, uh, lottery positions really all, not all that, uh, you know, it doesn't get you all that much in the end. But I, w- I thought that was kind of a good place, a good topic to have uh, our, our main discussion today. How much should that matter? How much as people are, are looking down the stretch here, should they be thinking about this? And how much big picture uh, should Red Wings fans be thinking about draft position uh, as this rebuild continues? Going into, I guess, what I would call probably year four or five next year.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, the Red Wings making a late season run um, when they really shouldn't <laughs> in the best interest of draft position is nothing abnormal for the team. I think, what was it, back in eighteen nineteen they won I think eight of nine games as they were going down the stretch, and ultimately their lottery combination ended up being One spot off of where New Jersey ended up. And, you know, New Jersey ended up winning the lottery with Jack Hughes. And then in, uh, you know, 17, 18, they win three games in a row down the stretch. You know, that, that, you know, alters their, their lottery path. So it's nothing new for the Wings here. But I think it is really, really important with the way Columbus has been cratering, with how, you know, much Buffalo has been floundering, although they're picking it back up the 18 game losing streak certainly does them no favors. And then you've obviously got New Jersey, you've got Anaheim. Uh, and, you know, now Detroit's really in striking range of, you know, teams like San Jose, Los Angeles. And so it almost is kind of in, to a point where this team is potentially going to be heading into the lottery with maybe the eighth best odds, ninth when you slot Seattle in. So you have to wonder if, if if you do that, I guess how how impactful is that Uh, on their ability to rebuild when the most likely pick for them at that point is is basically 10th.
1: Yeah, right now the most likely pick is still 7th. And actually, once you get outside of the top 4 or 5, I think that your slot actually does become your most likely because of how unlikely... Even if like, you know, a later team wins it, it's probably not going to be in the back. Although that seems to happen uh, every year. The team from the back three or four seems to go and maybe the red, maybe it'll be the Red Wings, but yeah, like right now, their most likely spot would be seventh, then eighth, then second, then first, then ninth. And those are the only options. So, you know, you talk about some of these guys that are going to be picked in the three through six range, which to me is like a pretty good tier of players and that's pretty much just off the table at that point. If they go back even farther, I think you start to get into really scary territory because when I, I'm my board, my, my first draft board will come out tomorrow of the top 10. It includes the top 10. Uh, Honestly, might even be a little short considering where they might be picking now. Um, But, but when I got to the back of that board, I started being a lot less uh, sure about some of the, the players that were thrown into that conversation. So that's kind of what got me thinking. I know this is a weird year for scouting. There, this is probably the year, if there's ever going to be a year, where you're going to get a great player in the teens. I, I would expect this to be that year. But you're still not likely going to get a great player in the teens. You're still not likely going to get an elite player at eight or nine. And I just wonder, you know, how much should, uh, I mean, how big of a concern is that to you? How, you know, I I, I don't know. You know what I'm getting at here.
2: Yeah, I mean, effectively, like, what's the probability of landing a top-tier player when your draft slot starts to slide kind of outside the the, the top five picks? And, you know, there's been a lot of different looks at this over the years. I think, honestly, uh, one of the best looks at this was done by Allen, uh, who a lot of you knew as Loser Points, um, who used to write for Raw Charge. And so he he kind of penned an article... Uh, back in May of 2020 that looked at this. And one of the things that I think he did really, really well that helps contextualize this is he just took the top 30 draft slots and based on actual value derived from that slot, he found players that kind of lined up with what the high end of that slot looks like, what the low end of that slot looks like, and what the median end of the slot looks like. And kind of goes from there to show you what type of player you can almost expect to get if you do exactly average at that draft slot. And one of the fascinating things is once you get outside the top five, when, you know, kind of the most likely players are Ilya Kovalchuk, Jordan Stahl, Drew Doughty, Eric Stahl, Phil Kessel, like that's your kind of top five. If you do just the middle or kind of medium uh, average there, Uh, as you move into six, seven, eight, nine and ten, it's Milan Mahalik. Brett Connolly, it's Bo Horvat, it's Brandon Sutter, it's Radic Faxa, Chris Higgins. Those are the kinds of players that you're most likely to land there. Now, there are certainly the guys that overperform. You know, the Sean Couturiers, uh, you know, is listed as the high-end option. Potentially Ryan Pulak is a high-end option. But really, you can't count on it. More likely than not, you are going to get a guy that maybe slots in on your third line, or slots in maybe on that second or third pair. And while that's still a valuable hockey player, for a rebuilding team like Detroit, what's really going to drag them out of this rebuild is landing elite talent. And We've talked about this over and over and over, that right now, with the way the NHL set up, the most cost-effective way to do that is through the draft. But at the same time, the draft lottery almost sabotages you to having very terrible odds to, to truly bank on it, if that makes sense. Yeah,
1: so, I mean... Honestly, at this point where the Red Wings are at in the standings, short of benching Bernie and Grice for the rest of the season and calling up, basically like putting like Philip Larson or something in that, bringing him over from from Sweden with no practices and throwing him in the net for six games. I don't think you can get even to five at this point. Even if you lose out, are you getting to five? Well, I guess some of them are against Columbus. That helps you if you lose to them. Yeah,
2: so I think the Columbus games are helpful. I don't think you catch Buffalo. You can't get New Jersey. You know, tech. Yeah, and I don't think you're going to get Anaheim or New and Jersey. Seattle's entrenched. So, really, so it's just
1: Ottawa and Columbus right. that you could feed. So you, the best you could get to was five.
2: Yeah, and the saving grace for the Red Wings in, in, in all of this draft lottery talk is they have played the most games. Only Columbus has played 50 games. Detroit's at 50. Vancouver is one point behind them with nine games in hand. San Jose is one point behind them with three games in hand. But I'm talking about hand. points percentage Kings, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, presumably everyone's going to finish the season, right? That's where at least we're trending. So at the end of the day, points percentage will end up being uh, just points in that regard, right? If everything's out of 56 games. So uh, I'm saying I think there's a lot of teams that still have a lot of games in hand on Detroit to where if they lose all three to Columbus, I think they do end up with the fifth worst uh, record here.
1: So here's where I'm going to now take a harsh U-turn because I say all this. And I do firmly believe that it's in their best interest. Every spot higher they can pick is one advantage gained that they didn't have before. I'm also not necessarily saying that that's a worthwhile thing to do, because I think especially, you know, you get into this year and I guess, you know, if you had your pick between going 0-6 down the stretch and not, you would take going 0-6 down the stretch. Sorry to all any Red Wings who are listening out there and, and that is, uh, you know, venom to their to to their whole competitive instinct but from a franchise perspective it's probably the ideal thing however uh going forward i don't think that's a that's a mindset that you can carry into the start of a season or in the middle of the season it's really only applies to like right now when the red wings are i don't know if they're technically mathematically eliminated they will be within the next like two days one way or the other um but effectively mathematically eliminated that's when i think you know whatever you you, you do what you got to do i guess um I don't think it's a sustainable way to approach this. And especially as you go into this offseason, I think you outlined last week in a really uh, you know well-thought-out, deep-dive manifesto into what you would do as Steve Iserman. And there's kind of a couple different scenarios you laid out. One was kind of the very uh, neutral, milk toast, you know, just bide your time. One is kind of the tear it down even further, which is probably the argument that anyone who's pro-tank wants because that you know, gets you the the lowest in the standings for next year's draft, which actually has a couple players in it who are worth tanking for. Um, And then there's the nuclear option, which is really pushing in the chips. This is where you get into your uh, offer sheet talk, your big free agent swing talk. And I think all of that combined with this conversation leads us into a nice little discussion of how patient should the Red Wings be? We know Steve Eisner wants to build through the draft. We know that, uh, you know, right now that is, the source that they've gotten their most promising uh, players from, it, whether it be Dylan Larkin in the draft, whether it be Lucas Raymond, whether it be Morris Sider, you just got Jacob Verana via a trade. Um, but how patient should the Red Wings be? When should they start pushing in and how content should they be to keep sitting down in the bottom 10, bottom five area of the standings?
2: Yeah. And I think this is the million dollar question for the Red Wings um, is kind of how aggressive do they be in that regard? I think one of the areas or one maybe one of the aspects that uh, sort of has gotten lost over the years, and maybe it's because the Wings have been kind of a bottom five team for the last several years. I mean, I think we're coming up on our fifth consecutive year of a top 10 pick uh, for the Red Wings, uh, that, that maybe we've sort of seen the fan base embrace that, OK, the way to do this is through the draft. I need to bide my time, get that lottery luck. And and then from there, that's when I can really turn things up and be aggressive. And I think that almost misses the boat because, Max, to your point, how long can you really maintain this culture of, well, it would really be better if we kind of kept losing here uh, before you sort of erase the goodwill that you've got built up over the last 30 years as as a Red Wings hockey player? And so where I think that gets lost is a lot of people focus on the all in as being building back up. The all-in is go out, sign the free agents, do the offer sheets, uh, add this player, add that player. But I also think that if, we, if we're if we talking about the draft lottery being the best or maybe the most cost-effective way to add or nab elite talent, the other all-in option that a lot of people don't seem to be too keen on is you have to tear it down further to get yourself more chips to play with. Because right now with the way the lottery is set up, even your best odds or set up at 18.8% uh, to, to win that first overall pick. That means you're offering an 82% chance that you're you're not going to pick first overall. And while 2022 and, and 2023 have conceivably three franchise players each, potentially a couple of guys even more than that, um, still to put yourself in the top three odds, uh, you're going to have to be one of the three worst hockey teams. And so why not give yourself multiple shots at doing that as opposed to just taking the, the, the one singular opportunity to do so.
1: Well, I think what you talked about with the, you know, the ex- kind of expected, the average kind of level of player that you get, even in those top 10 picks is, is as good a case as any um, to not tank. I mean, to understand that, you know, you're, you are less likely at every spot back you get from getting that elite player. But I also think... Is the likelihood even enough, even at four, even at five, if you, if you don't get the lottery bounce at number one or number two, which even if you're the worst team in the league, it's only going to be like a 35% chance that you get that. Uh, if you don't get that lottery bounce, how much damage are you doing to your franchise by languishing at the bottom? How much damage are you doing to Dylan Larkin, to Phillips Adina, to Jacob Verana, to Mort Sider when he gets here next year? Um, by being in these non-competitive games and, you know, we talked a lot on the last episode about the play style, you know, the longer you have players who are bottom of the standings level, a bottom of the standings level roster, the longer that's probably the style of play you're going to have to play to, to be competitive. And, and I think when I look at Steve Iserman, I think a lot of people see that the pipeline that has been built up in Tampa, they see Braden Point, they see Anthony Sorelli, they see Nikita Kucherov, Andre Palat. These are all players who the Lightning under Eiserman drafted in rounds two and three who are either very good to star level players. Uh, and they say, okay, enough drafts and that will happen in Detroit too. I look at it and I say, I look at Eiserman's best GM trait as trading. I look at the trades that he made in Tampa, the trades he's already made in Detroit and say in contract negotiations as well and say, these are the things that he does better than anyone else. Yeah. He ran a a organization that drafted as well in the middle rounds as anybody in the league. Um, Didn't always extend to the very top of the first round in in their time there. And also as to the point that you made on Twitter today, how much do do you trust that that's Iserman versus that that was Al Murray, that that was the Tampa scouting staff. I I, I do think that Detroit has some really good scouts in place, um, but uh, you know, that they're different scouting staffs like who do you give the credit to and I think that was the, a, a really good point that you were making today and I think if you if you want to take the position that a lot of it does go to Tampa's scouting staff um, that doesn't mean you abandon the idea of, of drafting and acquiring a lot of picks that's something every franchise should do but in terms of just waiting 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 to me I look at a GM like Steve Eiserman who seems to win or or break even in most of his trades and say, why wouldn't you want that guy pushing for NHL-ready talent as soon as possible?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think there's basically two, two things that I want to drive home based on what you said there, Max. I think number one is, you know, how long can you just sit here, languish, and, and, and wait and hope that this tank works? Um, and that's exactly it. I mean, year after year, if you want to set yourself up with the worst odds only to not win the first overall pick because you have an 82% chance that you're not going to win that first overall pick— how, what kind of psychological impact does that have on those players? How quickly do you then become Buffalo? That has not been in the playoffs in, in I think, what, a decade now? We're getting close to that, and they haven't really been a competitive hockey team in, in quite some time. I mean, that's a, that's a huge psychological issue to just languish and hope that the, your pick works year after year. Why not use a guy like Steve Eisenman, who tends to win a lot of these trades, and go out and make some trades to give yourself some extra lottery balls to work with. I'm much more okay tearing it all down for one year if I have three shots at the lottery as opposed to one. And so that that's kind of the point I was trying to make with this further teardown is if I just want to sit, bide my time, do nothing year after year after year and hope that an 18% chance is going to eventually win me a hockey game, then I'm effectively mirroring what Jeff Blaschel is doing as a coach of the team, like we talked about in the last episode, he's weathering the storm and just hoping that his team gets enough shots to that go that direction that ultimately results in a winning hockey game. And to me, that's just sitting back and waiting and hoping. And right now the deck is, the deck is very much stacked against you. So I just don't see that happening. And you have a guy like Steve Eiserman who picks his spots while on trades. He seems to win a lot of these trades. I mean, already this Anthony Mantha and Verona trade, as much as, you know, Mantha got off to a hot start in Washington. I do think the totality of uh, Verona plus these picks is going to be kind of a deciding factor in the Red Wings being able to win this deal uh, when you look back on it several years from now. Uh, why not leverage that kind of moves and, and use that so you can get multiple opportunities in the 2022 and 2023 drafts to potentially hit? Now, instead of hoping that you have an 18.5% chance at Shane Wright, maybe you're getting Shane Wright and Brad Lambert because you win both or all of a sudden you're completely changing the face of this franchise if you're willing to do that. But I think just sitting back and waiting for it to happen doesn't make a whole lot of sense year after year after year because of the psychological impact you're going to have.
0: Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night.
3: Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So your your point is not so much go all in. Your
1: point is either get more aggressive and and get some nhl ready players who can get this current core moving in the in the right direction now or be bold and be drastic and trade for a bunch of guys in in one or in this this draft or the next draft you know in terms of picks uh, a bunch of picks in this draft or the next draft so that you go from there and 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 that's like the immediate teardown rather than this bit by bit every year you trade off one guy who's about 26 and you keep doing it until you know, that one big break falls your way. You're saying either start pushing in, start start signing guys or trading for guys now who can start getting you better or start trading them away so you can just have a base and you go from there. And if you are going to bet on the draft, bet on the
2: draft. That's exactly it. I'm saying either you're going to go out and you're going to get a guy that can be a franchise hockey player, but you got to do it smartly. You can't go out like Buffalo and go trade for Jeff Skinner, go sign Eric Stahl, Go make a bunch of moves that don't make a lot of sense. You don't want to be Edmonton. Go give a huge contract extension to to Milan Lucic. Trade Taylor Hall for Adam Larson because you're just trying to piece things together. You have to do it smartly. So I offered one smart suggestion if you want to scale up really, really quickly, which is go after Elias Pettersson as a 23-year-old franchise center who's going to be one of the best players in hockey. But at the same time, you also have to go be aggressive in free agency. And I threw out an idea of, of throwing a lot of money at Dougie Hamilton, who's one of the best defensemen in hockey right now, you go make those two moves, immediately you're in the top half of the league. You're contending for a playoff spot at minimum, and you're going all in on your current prospects as being enough to get you over the hump because you're not going to have those four first-round picks if you offer sheet Peterson. But if you don't want to go that way, then you have to go all in on the lottery because just tearing down little by little each year and kind of biding out your time for lottery luck, you're going to continue to see Aging curves get passed by. You're going to continue to see guys aging into this 25 to 26 range where now you have to start asking yourself, do I trade them because I'm still not going to be good enough? We've been doing this for three years now. Thomas Tatar is dealt. You know, Gustav Nyquist is dealt. Anthony Manta is dealt. You know, now we're talking about Bertuzzi and Vrana. How many years, year after year after year, are we going to do this bit by bit versus take the big plunge, give yourself multiple opportunities, pick your spots, and if you can get two or three lottery picks over the next couple of years, uh then you really have a shot at turning this around quickly and maximizing what you have now instead of continuing to wait and wait and wait and push the the year out year after year after year until you land, you know, a Connor McDavid type player which even then lending one of those sometimes doesn't take you over the hill if you don't have enough complementary pieces like we've seen in Edmonton. Is how new of
1: a um I guess stance is this for you? Cause you know, especially early in the early days of this podcast that we talked a lot about patience, don't rush into free agency, all that stuff. How did, how did you get to this point? Or is this kind of a, a natural progression that has come on because the Red Wings have been doing this for a while now?
2: I think it's something that's uh, come on over the last few years. I think you're, you're absolutely right. And I, I should call attention to it, that for years. I've just said, sit back, wait, Let's let the bad contracts go, you know, let the Red Wings kind of, you know, slowly add these pieces through the draft and then at the right moment scale up. But at the same time, if you look at the way the deck is stacked against you with the draft odds, having one lottery ball is nowhere near enough to guarantee that you're laning this elite talent. And as I've done more and more research on the drafts, more and more draft work, seeing how quickly the the level of talent falls from the first to second to third to fourth pick. And by the time you're sitting in those fifth and sixth picks, frankly speaking, those fifth and sixth picks just don't do enough for you to advance this hockey team forward. You have to go all in, in my opinion now, really to go after that first, second and third pick, um, particularly in drafts that are shaping up to be elite talent heavy, as we're seeing in 22 and 23. Um, I just don't think that this protracted waiting really gets you anywhere helpful and you sort of have to force your hand and really make your own luck uh, to be able to get things moving in the right direction to maximize the assets you've got. Otherwise, year after year after year, you may be hitting one of every two or three lottery picks, but you never have the opportunity to maximize that talent with that lottery pick. And before you know it, it's time to trade them because they're starting to age out of your timeline. So I think you have to push in in either direction, whether it's I'm going to build through the draft and I'm going to do it with, you know, getting multiple lottery picks or I'm going to do it by picking my uh, spots smartly in free agency and through this offer sheet mechanism, which really isn't utilized and find a way to add young elite talent that way.
1: By nature, I am a procrastinator. What would be the harm of waiting one more year to have that to make that decision?
2: It's a good question. I mean, if you wait another year, so number one, uh, a lot of the the guys up for offer sheet right now are the guys out of the twenty twenty or 2018 uh, draft and 2017 drafts um, that were slid. And there's a great crop of guys. If you're going to think about that offer sheet route, um, you know, that's, that's really why I was pushing it for this season is, now you're talking about the 2019 and maybe some of the lingerers from the 2018 crop, which admittedly is not as strong of a crop uh, of, of hockey players as compared to the guys who are going to be eligible for an offer sheet this season. So I think that's kind of number one is you're not going to have the same caliber of players uh, available through that offer sheet mechanism. The second is if you kind of look at it from a, a free agency standpoint, because sure, you could go out and sign – a handful of free agents. Brayton Point's going to be there, and he'll likely require a huge contract. Alexander Barkov's going to be there, likely requires a huge contract. The Red Wings could do it, but the risk is you kind of have to pull both of those guys in uh, at the same time to really be able to elevate this team. The other challenge is by doing this with guys who are in free agency, they're already twenty six or twenty seven. Pedersen is twenty three, and that's the advantages of, of doing that through the offer sheet is you're getting a younger player through their prime. If you want to go out and land point Barkov, they're likely going to give you four or five really good years, but then they're going to slide in the back half of that contract. So that it's just a little bit of that timing perspective um, and and sort of making sure you're still getting guys that line up with your core young players. Why
1: um, go the route of fully tearing down and trading as opposed to, going all in on kind of utilizing cap space to take on bad contracts for picks. Is there a cost that you see to to that approach, which still acquires the picks without moving out the 25, 26, 27-year-old guys?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing you've seen so far over the last year with those kinds of maneuvers is you're not landing Mm first-round picks uh, outside of that Columbus pick that, uh, they were able to get in the David Savard deal. And even then that's the other issue. When you make that deal at the trade deadline, that team knows where that pick is yep. going to be, right? Tampa is making that deal knowing full well, that pick is going to be in the bottom five of the first round. And so you want to make this deal when there's that vi- where there's that team that doesn't know where they're going to end up, thinks they're better than they actually are, But has bottom out potential. So that ends up with nice lottery odds. And I laid out that was San Jose, that was Ottawa. You know, those were the teams that those teams were able to capitalize on. And I even offered, you know, four teams. The Flyers have really cratered this year. They don't look like they're in shape to really pull it together. The Predators are another team where this hot streak, you know, may make them think they're actually better than they are, but they don't really have a lot of great pieces, uh, you know, there that make me believe in them sustainably. You know whether you target a Calgary um, or or another team along the lines. Boston's eventually going to out, age out with Bergeron and Krejci and Tuca Rask. Uh, you know they've already lost the Dino Chara. I have no idea how their defense keeps doing it, uh, but at some point they're going to be a team that uh, you can target as well. Uh, that that's kind of the biggest crux. Is you saw the Wings took on Mark Stahl and they got a second round pick for five point seven million. All of a sudden you're going to fill up all your cap space and you're going to be ending up with you know, darts that you get to throw, but instead of them being good, precise darts that are first round, you know, top five picks, if you were able to get them through the lottery, they're now darts where you've been asked to chug a beer, <laughs> put a blindfold on, spin around and then throw right. it. And so that that's kind of the other challenge there.
1: I think that's fair. I think people are um, right now, just my read on the fan base is that people are enamored when they see Shane Wright and Connor Bedard. And they are thinking, okay, get through these next two drafts and and then, you know, then it's time to really kick it in. But but the potential of a Bedard who is doing absurd things in the WHL, the potential of Wright who hasn't played this year but did absurd things as a 15-year-old in the OHL last year, or even, you know, a Savoie, a Brad Lambert, I happen to like a few of the um, NCDP guys in, in next year's draft, um... I think they look at that and they say, okay, so let's just get through one more year. Let's just get through two more years. And and that, you know, allows time for the existing prospects, the existing recent draft picks to show you what they are. Can you get through two more years before having to make that call? Um, I get that. I will also say, while it is possible that Wright and Bedard, uh, based on what they've shown us could be that kind of Matthews McDavid for this decade, uh, Every single year, two years out, people are in love with the guy two years out. Maybe that wasn't the case this year with Owen Power, but you know, already a year ago we were talking about Owen Power. Two years ago I think it was Atu Ratu and he fell out of favor. Yep. Um, but you know, every year there's that guy that you're saying, oh, two years out, you gotta wait till you see this kid. And then those kids hit challenges. And I don't think it'll happen to, to Wright or Bedard. Um, but I'm just telling you in in one year or in two years we're gonna be there's gonna be a name that we're talking about for twenty twenty four or twenty twenty five and it's gonna be, yeah, I mean, maybe if the Minks could just wait and hold out and get that guy, then it'll be time to go. Uh, I think that you can really get yourself into a bad funk of of relying on that on that uh you know that one guy at the very top of the draft. I, you know, it's tough because you look at at the last cup winners and they have. Sidney Crosby, they have Patrick Kane, they have Anze Kopitar or Drew Doughty, you know, regardless of what people may feel about Drew Doughty right now, that he was a key piece of their cup teams and they got him at second overall. It's really hard to not look at that and say, how on earth do you win a cup without that guy? Even if you want to just go to Petrangelo and, and the blues, Ovechkin and the Capitals was, it was a one, but Petrangelo was a four. Um, and, and they almost did it, you know, Hedman and, and Stamkos were a one and two and, and or actually sorry, St. Louis did do it. Um, uh, you know, Stamkos and Hedman were, were one, two in Tampa Won it. They might win it again this year. McKinnon might win it this year. He's a one. I get it. Like it's really hard to envision your team getting there without that guy. Um, but I also look at Boston and that guy for them is three guys and none of them were picked in the top 20.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a valid, you know, critique there. And I think Boston's kind of a unique way in terms of how they came together. Um, You know, and so they're to me, I think they're almost the exception to how things are going to be able, at least if you're trying to game plan how to do it. I don't know that I would necessarily game plan on how uh, Boston's on because it is it is doable, but it's it's very rare. You've got to you've got to hit on a lot of those picks that are outside. And we've already talked about that. It is quite rare to be able to do that, Um, you know. And so when you're talking about the rates, the Bedards and things like that, I think you know, I know everyone's enamored with them. So I guess my, my kind of push to it is why not go all in on trying to land them, right? Go all in on saying, let me get two or three shots in the lottery at being able to land one of these guys. Because here's, here's where I'm at right now. We're talking already at the beginning of the show, this Red Wings team currently is likely to pick seventh. Do you think that gets better or worse next season as you add more at cider? As you add potentially Lucas Raymond, as you add Jonathan Berg, I think it stays. I think they've overperformed. I think, it gets I think if this
1: season had twenty four more games, they would not finish picking seventh. I also think if you put them in a division again with Toronto and Boston, but Boston's going to be on the decline, so I don't know. Um, I think it stays about the same next year. But I agree, like as Cider and Raymond get worked in here. Uh, They're going to have rookie years like everybody does. And we've seen with Jack Hughes and Capo Caco, the rookie years are really hard. Um, But I agree with you. I I think it's not inconceivable that the Red Wings have already made the highest draft pick that they will make in their rebuild.
2: Yeah. And so that's kind of where if if that's where you're at, then your lottery odds are going to, again, continue to be, you're now banking on your one singular draft pick with a three and a half percent chance of being first overall. And that's what you want to go in and bank on if you want to do nothing. And so that's where I'm sort of proposing. Again, neither strategy is a popular strategy in the sense that a lot of people talk about them. I mean, I'm throwing out the idea of an offer sheet and I'm throwing out the idea of completely tearing down this team and trading Jacob Verana and, and, and Tyler Bertuzzi. But the fact of the matter is, I think in the short run, that team is far worse. In the long run, that team gets better faster if you give yourself multiple shots of the lottery in 22 and 23 and you come away with a handful, not just one or two of these guys, but potentially three or four of them uh, in both those years. Now you're really talking about a potential juggernaut team, you know, within the next five years. Yeah, I mean, I, I just wonder where you draw the line.
1: I mean, like, I, I'm not a, I don't think that there's a pro. I, I think, honestly, it's, you know, my move would be to trade one forward this summer. Uh, I would take on one contract if I can, even if it is just a second round pick. And then I would start, you know, thinking about what I'm going to do. I mean, uh, with, with those picks, eventually you're going to have to start trading these picks and not just picking with them. I mean, I-, I look at a team like Arizona that, uh, doesn't have a first round pick this year. Uh, didn't have a second round pick last year. And I'm thinking, is there anyone I can poach from Arizona? If I'm a GM, if, if you know, they need pick capital, I've got a bunch of them. Can I, give anybody, can I get anyone off their roster for picks? I mean, I'm, I'm going to start thinking that way. But I'm also trading at least one forward, if I'm Steve Eiserman, for uh, another pick, whether it's this year or next year. I'm, I'm also starting to, to look, in terms of free agency, a guy that I would look at is Zach Wierenski when he's an RFA next year or in two years when he potentially can be a UFA. I mean, I know he's a little older than Pedersen, and that's a key part of your pillar, but I, I do think... At some point, you have to use free agency because there are guys that you can get for just money, especially when you're going to have a lot of young guys who are on ELCs or or early career bridges. Which Iserman has signaled through Tampa Bay through everything except the Mantha deal, which was at the very end of Mantha. There was no option to bridge. That that's how he runs things is through short term bridge, and then you go long when you're a little bit older. Um, if I was doing my how I would how I would operate if I was Steve Eiserman, that's where it would start. You're trading one forward. Uh, you're taking on a bad contract. Is it Tyler Johnson? I don't know. That's a ton of years, but he's a guy I would look at. Um, and and I think it would be, you know, trying to pick on some of these teams that are going to try to start rebuild and start dealing from your pick capital um, to get players. But I would be, if I was going to amend one of those, it would be that last thing. And it would be to wait another year um, because I do think there's merit in that. But I also recognize, I don't know. I don't think you want, Dylan Larkin to have to spend two more years losing like this. I don't think you want to have to have more cider and Lucas Raymond have any years like last year, if you can at all avoid it. So I, I think they're in a really hard spot. I think this summer is the most consequential four months of Eiserman's GM tenure so far.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I absolutely agree. I think what he does this summer is going to define the direction this team goes because he finally has some pieces in cider and Raymond that are young and moving in that direction. He has an enormous amount of cap flexibility at a time when cap space is a premium, given that we're going to have a flat cap for the next few years. He has boatloads of draft picks, and he has players in Vrana and Bertuzzi that if he decides he wants to keep, he can likely keep them relatively cheap as 25, 26-year-olds. Um, to add pieces or if he decides that they are trade chips they're two guys that are both likely to be able to net bigger returns although Bertuzzi's injury this year definitely dampens that but somewhat. I do think his
1: pedigree makes up like like you know Verona didn't score in the playoffs with Washington and that that I think is would be a knock against him in any of those situations as much as I think Bertuzzi's the guy that the Red Wings should try to keep for that reason uh, of the playoff scoring I also think like every level he's ever played at he's been an Outstanding playoff performer. I don't see anything in his game that tells me that will not continue in the NHL. If I'm a playoff team and I can take one of Detroit's wingers off their hands, and I'm going to make my best offer for one of Detroit's wingers, it is Tyler Bertuzzi. I mean, I, I want to get a medical on him first, but that that if I'm a contender, that is who I'm targeting.
2: Yeah, and and that's absolutely fair, and that's where you want to be shopping him to a team that. Is like, hey, all right. I mean, he's a quintessential Philly player in that regard. Or like where, Zach Hyman, you know, tough, in, in hard. Nose. Like that's the yeah. same role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Now you know the. That's the thing is, Iserman's well positioned to do a lot of different things. But in my opinion, where I'm at now, uh, after kind of thinking about this for several years and having it evolve, is I don't think you can put your foot in both camps. I don't think it can be. I don't think the time to sit back, do little. Uh, and, and kind of just make small moves here or there, I think that time is gone. Uh, I, I think you were waiting for those bad contracts to get out. I think the last of them can be addressed this year with Franz Nielsen potentially being bought out. Um, you know, Danny DeKaiser is only going to have one more year left. You could buy him out as well, or you could just ride out that remaining year, which I think they should do. But either way, you are now in the position where you are no longer waiting out bad contracts you have a young core with young players coming right now is the time where you got to go all in on a strategy. I don't think you can put your foot in both camps and say, well, you know, I'll, I'll acquire some good free agents or some draft or some players for draft picks here, but then I'll also take on bad players from another team there. I think it puts you squarely in the middle and and right now the middle with the way it's positioned and, and the draft being the the most cost effective way to, to rebuild I I just don't see that being enough uh to bank on one lottery ball right now.
1: I think you're right, but it scares it scares me to think about. <laughs> it
2: should scare you. It should be absolutely terrifying. And sitting sitting back and doing nothing is like, okay, that's fine, but you what you don't you you just end up prolonging your pain. It's like it's like you have this big task that you got to go out and do. You really know you're going to hate it, but you have to do it, but as soon as you've done it, it's done. But until you do it, all the anxiety about that task is making it infinitely worse until you just go do it. And so that's just what I think is going to happen here. If you continue to prolong and enter each draft lottery with the seventh or eighth best odds, because again, I don't see it getting worse from here. And now you're just kind of stuck in this seven to 11 range with hoping that that three and a half percent ball works in your favor. And I just, I don't see it. And now with the changes, To where you can only move up a max of 10 spots. If you're now outside of 10, you're not moving up to first. You're moving to second. You're moving to third, depending on where you're at. So it's, I don't know. It's a dicey situation to do, to just be status quo, in my opinion.
3: Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.
1: If I asked you, based on how Iserman has proceeded so far, which option you th- you think that fit better in, what would you choose? Because on one hand, he-, he just went out and traded Anthony Mantha. On the other hand, part of that deal was getting back a 25-year-old player because... From what he said, they do want to stay competitive, so it seems like maybe there is a little bit of having your cake and eating it too going on in that trade. Do you get a sense for which of you know which of those three doors he's his uh his operation kind of fits best with right now?
2: I mean, I, th- I think if I'm uh kind of prognosticating what he what Eiserman himself would actually do, it's neither of the two plans I outlined, it's going to probably be close to what you said, Max, where I think he trades. One of those forwards, um, and that's basically the highlight of his summer. I don't know if he gets a first round pick out of it. I think ideally he would like to. I don't know if it's going to be, you know, one of the four teams that I outlined as as high variance teams that I think could drop off. But I think he maybe trades one forward and and adds a couple of small pieces in free agency, potentially a defenseman because uh, the Wings could could certainly use one there. Um, And potentially uh, a depth forward, whether he decides to bring back Luke Glendinning or he goes out and gets a guy like, I don't know, Mikhail Grigorenko or another potential UFA center. Um, That's what I think his offseason will look like. I don't think it'll be as aggressive in either direction as what I've suggested. Um, I think it'll be a little bit closer to that.
1: All right. Anything else on this topic before we go into the mailbag? Because we uh, neglected that last week.
2: Nope, we should move on.
1: All right. Um, let's start here. The Re- It's from Gucci. The Red Wings finished next season around 20th in the league. Good or bad? On one hand, your team is progressing. On the other hand, you have very low odds getting a lottery pick and getting your desperately needed franchise center in Shane Wright, Matthew Savoie, or Brad Lambert. Right on theme.
2: Yeah, I mean, right on the theme here. I think it's good if you also have another lottery pick, and it's potentially... I mean, I don't want to say bad. Assuming that you're got you're getting to 20th on the backs of Mo Sider having a good year, on Lucas Raymond having a good year, on Larkin rebounding, um, that's some progress. But I mean, really, the only way you can evaluate that is if you've got multiple lottery picks or not, in my opinion. And if you don't, then I think you're in a bad spot.
1: I think it's. Uh... I agree. If you can get Larkin back to being a 60 plus point center and Zadina into the you know, above a half point per game, uh, 20 plus goal pace and Cider and having a good year, then I think you can call it a net good, kind of in the mold of what the Rangers had this year. Um, Although the Rangers have Artemi Panarin uh, and and some older players who I think can make them a contender as soon as next year. But, you know, they they look really good this year and it's being driven in large part by people who are going to be around a while. I think what you would fear is, you know, situations, maybe like what you're seeing in like L.A., where the players who are still driving the bus for them are Anze Kopitar, who's only going to get older and age out, uh, Drew Doughty, who's only going to get older and age out. You do have the Kempes, you do have the Gabe Velardis in the picture, um, who are going to be there for a while. But you know their best player is 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 Kopitar. He's over thirty, right? He's thirty two, something like that.
2: Yeah, I mean to be fair, that the Kings have the best prospect pool in the no, league, they bar do. none, in my they opinion. They
1: do, but I, I still would be uncomfortable with a 33-year-old as my best player, as, as a team who's rebuilding.
2: That's fair. I mean, you can make the same argument about Pittsburgh. They have Sidney Crosby as their best player still, right? And although he is Sidney Crosby, they don't have the same prospect pool that the oh, Kings do.
1: big pain is coming for the Penguins. I mean, you want to add Pittsburgh into the list yeah. of, of teams that you're... <laughs> Talking about potentially trading with a Pit- uh, uh, fall is coming for Pittsburgh too, for sure. They're going to go through what the Red Wings went through. Although it's Pittsburgh, so they're going to need a first overall pick their first year of the rebuild.
2: Right, exactly. So
1: there's that. Um, okay, uh, moving on. Uh, Gucci also asks between Valeno Raymond and Bergen, who was on the NHL roster full time by the end of next season.
2: I mean, I think Valeno is the easy one, right? I mean, if we're already talking about him potentially landing on the the team this year, he's already spent some time in Grand Rapids. I think. He's the easy one to start and finish the season, in my opinion.
1: I think that's right. I think he's the most likely. Next, I would go with Berggren because Berggren and Raymond, uh, you know, I I would say both kind of fit a similar kind of uh, stature profile, but Berggren is a little older. He has more pro experience, although Raymond's actually probably played about the same number of SHL games as Berggren because of Berggren's injury, but uh, Berggren's right. also produced at a level that, that Raymond hasn't, so I would put him next most likely, but I actually don't think either of them are likely to start the season. Maybe you're seeing him at the very end of the year.
2: Yeah, I think that's reasonable.
1: All right. Uh, Eric B. wants to talk about Larkin and how much concern fans should have over his lack of point production. Lots of ice. Hasn't been that 60 to 70 point player that he was for a few years there in, in, in you know age 21, 22, 23. Um, you know, he makes the contention that he's closer to Lars Eller and Blake Coleman, who are third line centers. I, I do not agree with that. But points wise, that there is something to that. So how concerned would you be with that?
2: Yeah. I mean, we, we briefly talked about this on the last episode where, you know, I think some of the the point scoring has really been reined in over the last two years as Blashell's kind of tightened up the the system from a defensive standpoint. Um, so you're not necessarily seeing the same scoring numbers. And again, you know, this is a hockey team that scored two goals per game last year and scoring 2.2 goals per game this year, dead last in the league and in, in, uh, both times. So, you know, I'm I'm not necessarily worried as much about the point totals as I am about his on-ice impacts. And I think there's a couple of different ways you can look at it. You know, I was kind of touting the evolving hockey model, which doesn't use how good a player is prior to that season. It's strictly just trying to evaluate what happened that season from an on-ice and perspective. Um, whereas maybe Micah's model on hockey viz actually continues to add information to pre-existing information about a player. And so there's actually a a huge discrepancy, as you pointed out to me, Max, between the two models where Micah's model is actually suggesting that Larkin's having the, what, second best uh, net impact of his career, whereas the evolving hockey model is actually suggesting that Dylan Larkin's having the second worst season of his career. So I think it sort of depends on what lens you want to look through here. But for me, as long as Larkin is having a continued net positive impact relative to his teammates when you assess for competition that's what i want to see at the end of the day
1: i think he needs to score more i don't think it's sustainable to score at the level that he has this season and continue to call him a number one center which i've been really adamant about doing i'm willing to write off last year and this year um partly because of lack of talent partly because of injuries um all that i do think it needs to kick back up soon. I mean, like, the guy who I've been comparing him to, right, is Gabriel Landeskog. You know, when, when the Avalanche went into the dumps, Landeskog's numbers were really bad. I mean, it, it was... uh it was not until they kind of emerged that Landeskog came back to being kind of that, you know, nearly a point per game player that he's been in these last couple of seasons. He's at a point per game right now, actually. Um, but, you know, in 16, 17, when they had their really bad year, Gabriel Landeskog had 33 points in 72 games. And so, like, that tells you what, and, it, you know, that was at age, what was he? He was 24. That's exactly Larkin's age right now. Yep. So, and, and the year before that, it was 36 and 80. Sorry. 53 and 75. Um, I think I think that was about the pace that Larkin was on last year too. Now the Red Wings aren't going to turn the corner as quick as the Avalanche did. So maybe it's one more year where it's not there yet, but it's got to get moving in the right direction again soon here to still keep treating him like, you know, a first line um, center. I, he's the Red Wings first line center until, you know, they draft someone who's better, which may not be for a couple of years. But um, I, I do think it's, you know, he, it, it's fine right now. You, you understand the context to the point where it just is what it is, but it, it you know, eventually the, the scoring has to come back. I think.
2: Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I guess it's sort of how you want to view it. If you view him as being your number one center, particularly on a team, that's going to be, you know, a playoff contending team, then you absolutely need to see that scoring come back. Or if you view him as like, Hey, you know what? I think his ceiling really is being a really good second line center. Um, then I think maybe the expectation for the point shouldn't necessarily be there, but uh, continue to make sure that he's got a really strong two-way game.
1: I think that's fair. And I think the two-way game has continued to get better and better. Sorry, actually, the defensive game has continued to get better and better.
2: Yeah, so you, you don't want to use two-way or 200-foot, right? Because that'll be the truth. Well, yeah, I'll word. just
1: get I'll get dunked on for, <laughs> for days. Um, all right, so Lars, you know what this one is. If the Red Wings pick like they're positioned to right now at 7th, with the risk of dropping as far down as ninth. Why on earth shouldn't a goaler pick be on the radar? Isn't it better to pick the player who is the best at his position in the draft rather than picking the third to fifth D center or wing? You've you've done your spiel on the show. You've done it in print. Do you want to do three to four minutes on it right now?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the reason why not is number one, historically goalies drafted uh, early on have not panned out in the same manner as forwards, uh, even more so than defensemen. Um, Second, you know, we've seen that teams continue to struggle uh, to identify who the best goalie is in a given draft and that there continue to be NHL goalies drafted uh, all throughout every round. Uh, You know, one guy who stands out, I mean, people can say sometimes, oh, this is just going back to the 2000, 2001, 2002, and 2003 drafts where a lot of goalies were taken and they were all bad. Uh, Well, no, I think that second point still persists as we still see guys like uh, Dustin Wolf go in the seventh round and he's looking like a heck of a hockey player. Um, Really good draft. You know, Caden Primo, who I think is starting for the Canadians uh, or is going to get a couple of games in here soon, was a seventh round pick uh, for Montreal relatively recently. So there are still guys that are somehow sliding all the way into the sixth, seventh rounds that are really good goaltenders that. Um, they're just being missed, and you know. Third, I think you have to be certain. You know, going to Lars's question, who's the best at his position? Well, sure. I think right now we think Jesper Walstead is the best goaltender uh, at at this particular time. But I think there are serious concerns and questions about how well we really identify who the best player is at a given position in a draft. When we know that over the years we've been calling the draft a crapshoot because after you get outside. Uh, you know, the top 10, top 15, top 20. There's so many gems that continue to fall through. I mean, we just spent half the episode talking about Tampa and their second, third round uh, draft picks. Those are guys who have sliding that they would probably go in the top five if you did those redrafts today. So to me, the level of confidence to say that not only Walstead is uh, the best goalie in the draft, but he is by far the best at his position such that I have to take him there. Uh, is another concern, and then finally, we've seen year after year after year you can get league average goaltending from free agency. The Red Wings did that a couple years ago with Jonathan Bernier. The Carolina Hurricanes continue to do it with you know Peter Mrazek, James Reimer. They tried it with Scott Darling; it didn't work. Sometimes it bites you in the butt. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, you know that the Colorado Avalanche have done this with Philip Grubauer and Pavel Francouz. Like there, you don't have to have the league's best goalie. To be a good hockey team, uh, to to be able to to really win a lot of these hockey games, sure, that's one strategy. Um, and then I think the other thing I'll throw in there to all of that is even if you draft these best goaltenders, um, the development timelines for them haven't been the same as forwards and defensemen. Uh, for whatever reason, goalies seem to be coming a lot farther behind, whether that's due to just there's only a couple of slots you can really play at in each of these development leagues. And and therefore you need to see more time at those development leagues before you want to accelerate them, or it's just simply NHL teams not knowing how to advance a goaltender. I mean, you're going to see a guy like Spencer Knight who signed his ELC, the Florida Panthers, how many games are they going to get out of that on the ELC when he's at his most cost-effective value? Instead, they're going to have to end up paying him a little bit more money before they can start getting games out of him because he's already blocked by Sergei Bobrovsky, and this is going to be the case for... A lot of ELC goaltenders, they just simply don't get advanced fast enough. You know, it'll be interesting to see what the Predators do with uh, Yaroslav Askarov, given that they've got UC Saros, who looks like a heck of a goaltender, and he's in his 20s. So, at the end of the day, I just don't think you extract enough value out of that pick. And when you have to hit on that pick, uh, I just don't don't like the risk uh, benefit uh, trade off there. Yeah,
1: to me, there is exactly one justification for picking Jesper Walstead. and it's you think he can be a perennial top not you not you think he can be you think he is a top 10 to 15 in the league perennial goalie workhorse starter 50 plus games a year every single year if you think he's that then you can justify it I would say probably starting around nine or ten if you don't think he's that I don't think you could take him in the first round if you think he might be a starter you can't take him in the first round. If you think he will be a starter, you can't take him in the first round unless you think it's a top half of the league every single year guy. Because you can find starting goalies in free agency for 3 to 4 million dollars a year every single year. And and we see it every single year. What you can't find is a true number 1, a franchise goalie. And if you if you think Wallstedt, if you if you are convinced Wallstedt is that, then I think you can take him in the top 10. I think the Spencer Knight pick right now. Which was right around ten or eleven or twelve or somewhere in there, looks fine on on that value because it does look like Spencer Knight can be a top half of the league goalie. Maybe the Askarov one works out the same way. I personally, especially with the way Wallstead closed the season, would not take that risk. I would not be convinced that he can be, you know, a, a perennial top ten to fifteen goalie. Um, I'm guessing Lars feels differently. That's why he's been asking about this. Um, So, if what really matters is how the Red Wings feel, if the Red Wings think that they are drafting, you know, Steve Eiserman drafted Andre Vasilevsky right with the nineteenth pick. It was their second pick um, of that draft, I believe. Um, And Andre Vasilevsky is the best goalie in the world. You would make that pick one hundred times out of one hundred. But in, in hindsight, but. If you don't know you're getting a goalie who can be that good, who is going to compete for Vezinas, who can steal you playoff series single-handedly, then I don't see how you can justify the risk that all goalies carry of busting. Even no matter how convinced you are, they carry a risk of busting. So you have to be convinced that if he hits, it's top 10 goalie in the league type, top 15 goalie in the league type perennial player. Uh, to me in order to justify it. Is that fair?
2: Yeah, I think that's fair. And even going back to the Vasilevsky case, we talk about him being the best hockey player, right? Uh, Or the best goaltender in the league. The key for Tampa was they were able to extract value on a cheap contract when they won the cup in 2019, 2020. He was on a three and a half million dollar average annual value. How are they going to win now when he's at nine and a half million? That's that's the challenge, right? Now you're going to go and commit $9.5 million to Andre Vasilevsky. They're still a really good hockey team this year, but look at the cap gymnastics they had to go through, you know, with Kucherov being basically on LTIR the entire season, hoping to activate him in the playoffs when the cap doesn't matter. But, I mean, it's it's that kind of mental gymnastics that they're going to have to go through, and, and really it worked out for them. They got the Stanley Cup uh, with Vasilevsky, but now here's the challenge of as you continue to go on over the years with these, high dollar goaltenders, are they going to be able to be as cap flexible, as competitive as teams like Carolina and Colorado that have been able to keep goaltending costs down and really load up on the skaters.
1: No, you're right. I mean, like, full disclosure, is almost certainly going to be on my heart ballot this year, somewhere on it. I think he's been that good and that much better than the next goalie to warrant that. But I get what you're saying. Like in terms of like 9.5 million dollars out of an 81 81- five million dollar cap that's a huge sum to be dedicating to one player especially one who he plays most days he does not play every game and uh, I, I think that is very relevant
2: yeah and and that's exactly it right so he's great this season um, and and you're hoping that he can, can can sustain that for the lifespan of this contract but I think that's where the real crux and the real challenge comes in is we've also seen that goaltenders are just so variable year to year. Even the elite ones, that's what made Henrik Lundqvist really stand out so well was he never really varied over the course of his career. Well, you've seen guys like Sergei Bobrovsky have great seasons and then Crater and then have a bounce back season and then Crater. Uh, You know, Semyon Varlamov is another guy that's fallen in that realm. There's just so much variance associated with him that you just have to be absolutely certain before you, you spend that kind of capital on that position.
1: Yeah. All right. I think that's all we got for today. Anything you want to uh, add before we leave off? That's all I got. All right. Red Wings on the road this week, two games, one at Columbus on Tuesday night. That's a big one for all of you who are watching the lottery order Thursday at Carolina. Uh, The Red Wings have a chance to take the season series against Carolina in that game. So uh, actually they might've already clinched it depending on how you want to count overtime games, but uh, very bizarre. And then their home uh, two games uh, against Tampa and then they they close with two more at Columbus. Uh, we won't get to all of those on the next episode of the show. In fact, we're only going to get to one of them. But we will talk to you then on Wednesday night. See ya.